All right, welcome back. This is Dear Baseball Gods, episode 39, and I have a great guest today, Mike Pinto. And Mike is the manager of the Southern Illinois Miners. This is going to be his 12th season uh, in professional baseball, and he's had an outstanding track record there. He's got a 583 career win percentage with the team. It looks like this year, um, fingers crossed, he's going to become the winningest manager all time in the Frontier League. So, Mike hails from Chicago and uh, was previously the Oakton Community College Junior College Coach of the Year. He's scouted for the Royals. He is a professional speaker in the offseason and all around a very interesting guy. So he and I crossed paths years ago when I was competing against him in the Frontier League. And then we've kind of run into each other a couple of times since then, most recently at the ABCA convention in Indianapolis. So, Mike, how's everything going? Everything's great. Thanks for having me, Dan. Yeah, no problem. So first question, are you a fire eater? I'm definitely a fire eater. (laughs) (laughs) I was was just watching one of your videos, doing a little research. Um, So tell me about your speaking before we kind of get into all your baseball stuff. So that's, you're kind of transitioning now, I assume, as baseball season is getting close. Yes. um, It's really, it's kind of a strange year all in all with me um, because I wear so many hats in addition to managing the team during the season, obviously putting the team together. Three years ago, I was named the chief operating officer of the entire organization. And so with that has come over the last few years, a change in corporate culture, how we did what we did, how we put on our show. We did a number of uh, renovations to the ballpark. Last year, we built a miniature golf course uh, inside the stadium. Um, We do a lot of different outside events other than baseball. We put on something called Winter Wonderland, where we turn the stadium into a winter fest, have uh, ice skating on the field, and and that's a lot of fun. So so I have all of those overall responsibilities as well. But now it's baseball season, and I can't wait to get back on the field with the guys again. Yeah, so one of the interesting promotions you guys do is – well, I don't know if it's just a promotion, but you promote your players where – you know, they sign with you, you put their name and their face on the billboard and or not the, the, the scoreboard. And I think it just gives them a chance to, you know, feel part of the community. Well, to be honest, I want them to feel part of our family. Um, from day number one, I thought there were some key elements to building franchises like this. And I had the rare opportunity to build this from the very ground up with the miners. And one of those pillars, the eight pillars that I built was that I wanted this to feel like a family. Um, I started something a long time ago called, you know, especially with social media, hashtag always a minor. And so when you are part of our family, you are always part of our family. Uh, Not a week goes by that I don't do a job reference for one of my players. Um, Last week, I got a photograph from one of our guys who played for me 10 years ago. And so those relationships are all really, really very important to me. And so I remember you telling me the story back in the day, uh, I think it was 2014, we chatted on the phone, I was kind of picking your brain about speaking, and you told me about how you got the job at Southern Illinois. So would you recap that again? Because I know you you won the position over a lot of you know former major leaguers and people with really extensive baseball resumes, and you weren't a professional player, but you're obviously a, a great baseball mind. So tell me how you navigated that, that interview and, and landed kind of where you are today. Well, if I can give you just a little bit beyond that. So the first thing was I had been a pitching coach at Oakton Community College. I transitioned from that into head coach when Rich Simmons, uh, who'd been there for 30 years, when Rich retired, I took over the program. 
And along those lines, uh, I got the opportunity to be a coach for Matt Noakes uh, in the Northern League with the Joliet Jackhammers when they were starting their franchise. And Matt gave me the opportunity our second year of running spring training. And so it really gave me a sense of how to organize at that level. Uh, we had some really great players. We had some former major leaguers um, during my time there that were really great examples of what it takes to play the game and do it well. And then I got the opportunity to manage in Sioux Falls with the Sioux Falls Canaries. I was there two seasons. I took my lumps, um, sold a number of players along the way, which was wonderful for them. But that's not always great for an independent league manager, especially when you don't have a track record. And so after mm -hmm. my second season, our team was sold, a new owner came in, I was let go. And, you know, as you alluded to earlier, I speak professionally around the country at corporate conferences. And so I thought I would just end up doing that year long. Around that time, a gentleman named Eric Haig, who was the CEO of the Miners, called and said, uh, you were referred to me as a potential manager. We're going to be in Chicago next week. Um, would you have time to sit down? And so I certainly would look at any opportunity. I did some research on them in the meantime. He asked me to bring a resume. I didn't bring a resume. I brought a book. In the course of that week, I wrote, how do you build a franchise from the ground up? And it was based on eight pillars. And it was a five-year plan with step-by-step -step what those strategies would be as to how do you, as I said, how do you build a dynasty? And how do you do it from the ground up, something that would be consistent and have, uh, to steal Theo Epstein's line, sustained success. And uh, so sat down. He went through the book during the interview. And when we got done, he said, uh, I need to get you in front of our owner as soon as possible. He said, We've, um, we're investing $26 million into a new baseball stadium, millions into the branding of the team. And we were really looking for someone who has a bigger plan than just how to win one baseball season. And I've got the rare opportunity to be able to do that. So where do you feel like you got the skills to put that book together? Well, first of all, I guess I built um, a pretty good program at Oakton Community College in a short period of time. And I had some strong sense as to how I wanted to do that, what things were that were very important I learned more of that when I was with Joliet and learned it certainly by taking my lumps as two years as a manager in Sioux Falls and learned if I were to do it from scratch, how would I do it? And along the way, I had read, read a lot about the building of the Boston Red Sox when Theo Epstein was there and how he did it. And what were there were six books that had been published over that, kind of how he built that whole thing. And I thought in those books were gold mine, gold nuggets for me. And I thought those are things I can implement here into our system. Okay. That makes sense. Um, you know, I, one of the things that when I was a player, Southern Illinois, you know, Mike's team was kind of like the little bit like the Yankees of the frontier league. So if you're not familiar with the frontier league, it's a sort of rookie level, uh, it's a rookie level league in independent baseball. And if you don't know independent baseball, it's a, it basically runs parallel to the minor leagues. It's unaffiliated with major league baseball. So the Cubs have their 
farm system. They have their single A, their rookie ball teams, their double A, triple A, and major league teams. But independent ball, they're all just independently owned. And they focus on winning and they focus on getting guys uh, signed into major league organizations. So then they can jump onto that other parallel track and then go on up to hopefully the major league. So how many guys have you signed uh, or had signed away at this point? Well, we're, we just uh, crossed the 50 mark. Okay. That's great. So four or five, four or five a year on average. You know, it, it, there's been no average. It, every year is different. Uh, I've sold as many as eight in one year. Um, and I've had years where we've only sold one or two. The marketplace dictates it. The, the players that we have at a given time dictate it. But, but overall, we've tried to create a platform for guys where they could not only showcase their skills, but help us win at the same time. So how, what, what would you say the chief differences are between independent baseball and a minor league baseball team? Like local here, there's the Peoria Chiefs. There's, uh, well, I guess who else is closer? There's the Kane County Cougars up in the Chicagoland area. What do you think the big differences are? Well, number one, affiliated baseball is all about the development of players, specifically development of their prospects to get to the major leagues. The other guys that are around them are supporting cast. To help them, they have to have somebody to play against. They have to have somebody else to play on the field with. But everything is geared around the prospect. Every now and then, a non-prospect turns into a prospect. But more times than not, that's the ca- not the case, as we see mm-hmm. with all the releases that happen. Along the way, it is with it being solely about development, the winning and losing on a daily basis for most organizations is really not all that critical. Yes, they'd like to have them learn how to win, but that is not the focal point. Independent baseball, I, I don't care what round a guy was drafted in. I don't care what kind of signing bonus he got. Um, I've had first and second rounders. I had a guy get $1.8 million as a signing bonus. And um, for me, I don't care about any of that. The best player at every position plays, and we play to win every night. And so how does that change the culture as far as, you know, what's expected out of players, their shelf life on your team? Because I've seen guys, obviously, in my career, and I was a career independent player, show up for one night and they don't play well, and they are on a bus back home that same night. Um, can you talk a little bit about the turnover in, uh, in the Frontier League? Well, first of all, that, that's never happened with me. Uh, if a guy was good enough for us to sign and came on those kind of recommendations or the scouting reports from people that are important to me and know what kind of guys we like, a guy would never be here one day and gone. That just wouldn't happen. But – there is a pressure to perform. And, um, you know, it's funny. Every now and then I'll get a call from a scout. That it just happened this week. I've got this guy, Mike. He's 96. He'll get 97. Um, and I look up his numbers and he strikes out almost to an inning. I'm not in the project business. And, yes, he may have an absolutely live arm. And their organization should sign him and let him figure it out. I don't have the luxury of that. I'm in the winning business, not the project business. So you don't like these hard-throwing guys that can't find the strike zone. So besides his, his two strikeouts, what, what were the, the rest of this guy's numbers like? Uh, they weren't very good. High ERA, um, two walks per inning, 
and that's that's not a fit for me. I like strike throwers, and strike throwers are far more valuable to me as a manager than velocity is. And Especially you think- starting pitchers, I want guys who can create contact. Uh, in my ideal world, three pitch outs and get back in the dugout and let us hit. Stay in the game longer. Let me go to a bullpen when I want to, not because I have to. And if that happens, then my bullpen gets the proper rest they need and are able to perform at their best at every opportunity that I use them. Okay. So I'm curious, now that there's more harder throwers than ever, I'm sure there's been a shift in independent baseball just like everywhere else where everyone throws harder than they did when I was in it. Uh, Are you starting to see, because I'm sure at some point there's going to be a tipping point, right, where, okay, everyone can throw pretty hard uh, and everyone doesn't throw enough strikes are they going to start to revalue strike throwers? Boy, I sure hope so. Uh, I had a, I had a lesson years ago. I'm managing in Sioux Falls, and it was it crystallized my thoughts on what I was looking for in in a starting pitcher, particularly. And I had had the managerial week from hell, where we had a couple injuries. We had a guy picked up while we were on the road, a starter, and I'm coming back off the road. I do not have a starting pitcher for Saturday night, and I can't get one. And there was a local guy named Matt Coziera, and Matt had had a very short stint in the Reds organization. He was a stockbroker for Smith Barney at the time. I'd met him at one of our local hot stove dinner things, and really nice guy, and he was this the stud of the local Rushmores, who was the the town team. And uh, I called Matt and said, any chance you can pitch this weekend for us? And he said, Mike, I haven't picked up a ball in a month. I'm not sure what I can give you. So, uh, But he agrees to do it. Sure enough, Friday night, we go a deep extra inning ball game. He comes in the next day in a business suit after a meeting. And I give him all this stuff. And he said, I read the paper this morning. Uh, looks like uh, you may not have a lot down there. And I said, no, man, I really don't. I said, just do the best you can. So he managed to throw a 92-pitch complete game, two-hit shutout against (laughs) one of the best-hitting teams in our league. And afterwards, I heard a newspaper ask him, Matt, well, how did you do it? You haven't pitched for the Rushmores in a while. And he said, well, I knew Mike didn't have a bullpen with what happened last night. So I figured in three pitches, they'd either be on first base or back in the dugout. And this light bulb went off in the back of my head and I went, that's it. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah. The three pitch efficiency efficiency thing is just so overlooked. And, you know, if you, if you break it down for a little kid, you can say, Hey, would you rather pitch five innings or three innings? They say five. Would you rather have more fun or less fun when you, you know, you have your, your game on Saturday. If you throw more strikes and you get them to put the ball and play earlier, they get to have more fun playing baseball that day. And obviously at a, a pro level, you know, you, help your team win and you get paid millions of dollars, but you know, neither, yeah, neither here I, there, I, I guess. The Don't get me wrong. I'll take the strikeout, but I really would prefer the ball put in play early. It, it stay longer in a game. Give, give us a chance to have our offense work a little bit, give our guys, um, our bullpen a chance to use at their specialty. That that's an efficient ball club. Yeah. And speaking of bullpen, you start, are you a, are you a matchups guy? So we talked a, a, a bunch about sabermetrics and some of the new stuff that's out there. Um, are you a matchups kind of manager, or, or how do you tend to use your bullpen? Yeah, I really am. 
over the years, uh, I've gone out, I've attended the analytics conference out in Arizona and have gotten a real good education as far as uh, where your advantages come from and where you give them up. And so I, I do tend to use those. And I like to put pitchers in a position where they absolutely can succeed. And, uh, and if I do that, that's better for them. It's better for us. Sometimes it doesn't work. Um, just because a strategy doesn't work doesn't mean it wasn't the right strategy. Yeah, that's fair. I was listening to a, an audio book that I really liked uh, called Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke. Have you heard of it? Read it? No, I've not. No. So she just talks about how, because I, I guess she's a corporate speaker a lot now. I think she's retired from poker, but she's super bright. And she talks about how, you know, in the poker world, no one's decisions are ever certain because of the factors of luck and, you know, just what other players may or may not do, you know, so when you choose to bet or fold your cards or whatever, you know, your, your betting is a certain percentage, you know, you might be 70% sure that this outcome might happen and 30% not. And she talks just over and over about how, you know, luck is such a huge factor in our lives and how anytime we're making decisions, it's really more of a bet than it is anything else. And so when we're, we're choosing to you know put in a reliever or taking a starter out we need to be careful not to go through too much on the result because we could make the right decision to get a poor result and we could make the wrong decision and get a great result i mean you've seen this time and time again you know pitchers get 3-1 and you're like oh god impending doom and the hitter what you know pops it up grounds right. to a dull play right. you know so it's uh it's interesting just trying to play the percentages i guess and and, uh, you know, just the other part is I'm using, I'm dealing with human beings and what may be going on in their lives or how they feel. Uh, the one thing I do wish is that guys would really be honest with me about how they feel each day. Um, sometimes you have guys that want to be heroes and they're not feeling at their best. Um, I'd rather know that as I tell guys, I, I want here, I want teammates, not heroes. And, um, but Sometimes that competitive feel of guys who are just pure competitors and they they want to fight their way through it. And sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. But I do know that that exists. And uh, deep down, I really appreciate those guys who are just, they're just pure competitors and they, they're out there to win, to beat you one way or another. Do you feel like guys are ever, do, I mean, do you guys actually do that? Do they actually tell you like, Hey Mike, I, I need a day or Hey Mike, I don't feel good tonight. Like try to stay away from me. How much of that do you actually get? Sometimes I think that comes with trust as guys, players believe that you really do give a darn about them. They will tend to be more honest with you as time goes on. And th I think that's a really important part of managing is um, first of all, I really do give a damn. I really do. I give a damn about them as people, about their performance, about helping them get whatever opportunities it is. And as guys begin to figure that out, then um, they'll tend to trust me more and I'll get that kind of information. Yeah, it's that's such a hard thing because for me, you know, I coach 14 you this year and obviously we have our, our organization of six teams at my academy here in Normal, Illinois. But I tell kids like, look, you need to tell me if you have something going on with your arm, if you don't feel right, like I need to know because little problems become big problems. 
But at the same time, I don't want a player who's always coming up to me and telling me that his arm doesn't feel that good. And it's this weird double-edged sword because you want the guys who would compete under any circumstance, who wouldn't complain. And you see it even at really high levels. You know, I had a teammate who pitched in the bigs for a couple years, and he was always like the first one to take himself out of the game. And he had, that was his reputation. Everyone knew it. And there was just sort of like a, oh, you know, he's done, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, I don't know. It's hard to foster this attitude where they're really going to be honest only when it really, really matters. And then we also, as players, like we just, we're very scared of, okay, maybe Mike trusts me today and I can tell him my arm doesn't hurt. But if I tell him two other times that my arm's not feeling good and it becomes a pattern, maybe he doesn't trust me anymore and maybe he doesn't want me on his team anymore. It's, I don't know that there's, that's a really, really tough battle that you fight and you're probably aware of it, but it's, uh, it's hard to get past. We don't, we, there's a distrust that never goes away because we know you kind of hold the keys to our careers. Yeah. I, I, I believe me, I get that. Um, I know one of the things that I go through and it's something I learned from Matt Noakes years ago. And, uh, you, you and I probably would have done battle, and I'm okay, by the way, with that. As I tell guys, I'm going to do things, and if you want to talk to me about them tomorrow, I will be glad to tell you why I did what I did. If it bothers you that much, don't complain about me during BP tomorrow. Come talk to me. I'll give you an answer. You may not like it. You may not agree. It may not have worked, but it will always be the truth. And so I figure if I work that way, um, that's a good transparency to have with players. But one of the things that I believe in is, so you've thrown a beauty of a ball game. You know, we're winning three to one. It's the seventh inning, and um, you've got two outs, and you just walk a guy. Now the tying run is on base. The lead run is at the plate. You will be out of that game. Uh, mm-hmm. I will, there's not a negotiation. I'm not going to come out and ask how you feel. I have to protect your psyche. And the worst that can happen after pitching that well is that you take a no decision. That's yeah. for me, that's the worst that can happen. Um, I bring in a fresh arm, we get an out. If it doesn't work, the worst that happens is you get a no decision. I need your psyche for the next four days to be positive so that you go into your game on day five with that positive belief in yourself. So that it's a battle that I have a few times a year. You know, I was still good. I was still good. I know you were, but I can't let you lose that game. Yeah, and I get that. I remember one of the – I'll never forget the moment because it was just so – it was a defining moment for me. It was my first year when I played with Normal. I, you know, I got sent out there for usually 115 pitches every time. So if I was finishing the seventh inning with 102 pitch count, I knew I was going to go back out. And – I did that one time and I was, I think at like 108 or something and they asked me how I felt. And I just felt I like had, I literally had nothing left. I don't know how I got through the seventh. The ball wasn't going anywhere. It had like nothing on it. It was just kind of like a grenade. And I said, yeah, I'm I'm good. I'm good. And I was like, oh man, I'm going to screw this game up. I'm going to go back out there. And I had like a two run lead. I'm like, ah, God, now this is going to suck. And I went out there and I, you know, I trudged through it and I got like three like fly balls and I, I was out of the inning. And it was just, a, you know, I didn't have anything. But it, again, it, it highlighted, A, it was just luck. You know, you go out there and make good pitches one inning and give them a couple of runs. And then another inning, you just go out there and have nothing. 
throwing in random spots and you, you get three outs. And that was what happened at that point. But it was kind of a learning moment because I had nothing and I was going to go out there. So I had to make the best of it and just be as tough as I could. And I, you know, there was some merit in that. Now, was that the best time for me to go back out? Probably not. But at the same time for me being thrown back out there, regardless against my will, you know, I just had to do as best I could. So it was just a, an interesting, I just remember the inner monologues. I sat there waiting to go back out. Uh, but you just can't, you know, I just funny. couldn't give in, you know? It's funny. You use that example and you confirm something that I had learned when I was scouting. So we're in Chicago and we're scouting a guy uh, named Grant Johnson. He was a projected very high round pick. He was pitching in the, the state baseball championships. He committed to sign to go to Notre Dame. But our scouting director had come in for this. And prior to the state championship, the state championship game was a hitting contest, hitting competition. The best high school hitters in Illinois. And my scouting director makes a comment. He said, Mike, watch this. The hitter knows what the speed is. He know he's so comfortable that there's no he's not wearing a helmet and there's not going to be a breaking ball. Watch how many outs they hit into. And you watch guys fly out. Yours is a perfect example. Here you didn't have your best stuff, but you threw the ball in the strike zone and hitters will get themselves out if you'll let them. Yeah, I never thought about that. That's a good that's a good analogy that even in home run derbies, guys sometimes hit zero home zero home runs. Uh, didn't even think about that. And ground balls and pop-ups and pop-ups on the infield. That still happened. Yeah, and my business partner and I, we were talking about that uh, yesterday. And just that, you know, this is the time of year, and especially in early in spring training for, for you guys in, in every pro league. God, we get so many parents that, that freak out, that panic. And kids text us, and they, they're panicking. Oh, I'm 0 for 9. I need a hitting lesson. It's like... What are we going to do for you? We're not going to change your swing. Like your swing is your swing. You know, it's just, it, and so we were talking about sample sizes. So what kind of sample size do you give guys before they, you know, it's like clear that you need to replace them. How, how big of a leash do you give them? So, well, first of all, it, it's not as much about the numbers. I can see whether they're overmatched. I can see whether they're making adjustments. Um, last year, I released a guy about a week into camp. And or a week into the season, and he just could not play the outfield at our level. He just couldn't, mm-hmm. and um, and I saw that pretty clearly. He just simply couldn't make the adjustments. The game was so much faster than it was in college for him. But uh, I I try not to pull the trigger too fast. And in my ideal world, I want less transactions, not more. Um, I want the same guys. Uh, Two years ago, as we were getting ready to go into the playoff, I we have the meeting right before the playoffs, right? And I said, how many of you were here during spring training? And 18 guys raised their hand. So I have 18 of my 24-man roster had been with us in spring training. That's a good year. Yeah, I think my first year, I think there were only 10 of us at the end of the season. And, uh, you know, so it wasn't just – but it wasn't just 12 guys off the initial roster. It was also – countless replacements of replacements of replacements as well. And what's a, what's a typical year look like for you guys? Well, we're allowed up to 25. I've, I've never done that. Thank, thankfully. Um, 
in an ideal world for me, I'm probably at that eight or nine number. And, and that's going to come from accommodation. That's not only going to come from releases, it's going to come from injuries. And those happen too. And you have to sign a new guy to replace them. Then your guy gets healthy and that player gets released. Um, sometimes it's out of lack of performance. Um, all of those can be, can be factors with it, certainly. And you can have guys get picked up and you have to replace guys that way as well. Mm-hmm. So mentally, how do you see, I mean, you see a lot of failure in players. You see success in players. When you see guys start to struggle, what do you look for when you're, you're just observing them? Because obviously some turn around, some don't. What patterns do you see in the people that turn around slumps versus others that don't and then end up getting released? First of all, do they see the slump as more than it is? And that can happen where guys build this four-game slump, let's say, into far bigger than it is. It may, it sometimes it's just four days. It doesn't mean they can't play. Uh, it doesn't mean they won't hit again. It just means it's, it's four days. So... Like I said, I, I try to give guys a little bit more time to figure it out. Do they work harder at it? Do Are they in looking at video of their games? We have all of that available to them. Are they talking with experienced guys about what they've gone through? in order Because everybody's gone through it. And mm-hmm. how did they get out of it? Are they working at it? Are they working at the game or do, do they quit on themselves? Yeah, and that's kind of a, uh, you know, my last couple of seasons, I hit slumps in like the same period of time, like the end of June, early July. And it seemed just like the league sort of started to adjust to me and sort of figure me out a little bit. And so I hit like these two week rough patches where it just seemed like I'd make good pitches. They hit them. I make bad pitches. They hit them. And it didn't matter how I threw the ball. I just kind of walked off a loser on those days. And, you know, like I said, it just it, it kind of doubled back to that that thinking on in Bet's book where. I had to ask myself, do I need a change? You know, is this a slump that's just going to happen from bad luck or do I need a change? And sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes the answer is no. And sometimes it's just like a slight change, but sometimes it's, I think it becomes really hard, especially for younger players and for parents and sometimes for coaches to say, okay, you know, he or she's not getting good results, but they just need to keep, but they will, if they just keep doing the same thing that they're doing, it's not always, you know, you can mine into outs constantly you know you can make good pitches you know and batting average for balls in play being what it is you know a certain amount of them are just going to get through and you can have a runner on second and that crappy ground ball sneaks through a bunch of a time you know a bunch of times in a row so I know as a player it's just it's tough sometimes to say okay I'm fine I'm in a slump but I'm fine I just need to keep being me and it will start to resolve but that was something that for me just didn't didn't really it was hard to keep that mindset and be realistic with it so I was just a lot older. I think it just comes with time. See, I track, uh, I have a card that I keep on me and I track literally everything that happens during the game. And with that will be, so you say about the ball that eat through the infield. I know that. I know that that wasn't a missile off the wall. So, so I'm not fooled. I, I'm not fooled by either good performance or bad. For me as a pitcher, are you, still th- are you still competing? Are you throwing strike? Are you mentally giving up on yourself on the mound out there? Are you trying to trick hitters now into outs because you don't believe in your stuff? Th- those are really the questions I'm looking at. Yeah. 
So in your in your speaking, you so I was watching a clip of you and you're talking about fire eating and you're teaching a group how to eat fire. And so tell me a little bit about your speaking and what is the point of the firing? I know the point, but explain to my audience why you do that. Well, for first, there's a lot of things behind it. The first one is as a professional speaker, you're up in front of a large crowd of people. You need to get their attention. And so for me, that's a very early on thing that I can do to get them engaged and active with me. And so if for your audience that has not heard this, what I do is I, as we get started the presentation, I say, to get things started, I always like to test my audience to see what kind of risk takers we have. What kind of people will live in a point of adventure? And I light a torch and flame comes off the top and I say, who wants to eat fire? This is the key to having the best year in your life. How many torches will I need today? And you don't get too many hands usually. And so I go ahead and I eat the fire and, you know, I'll, so I ask the question, what was it that kept you from raising your hand and saying, boy, if that's make the best year of my life, hey, I'm in. What would keep you from doing that? And the answer is always fear. And so the metaphor I give is, well, fear and fire eating is the fear of burning your face. But fear in life is different. Fear, it's a fear of rejection, fear of change, fear of failure, sometimes the fear of success, fear of expectations. So when the greatest skills you can have is to be able to be brave in fearful situations. As I say to them, I'm going to bring a group of you up here on stage. I'll tell you right now, it's totally safe. If you think I'm going to run the risk of you getting burned and me getting sued, you're the ones that are crazy, not me. And um, for example, you don't even, for those that have had a piece of pizza, cheese was so hot, it burnt the the top (laughs) and roof of their mouth. You don't even get that. The toughest part about eating fire is as the flame is about six inches from your face, you feel the heat and in the flame looks like it's three times the size because it's so close to your face. And the key is at that moment, finish what you start. Be brave in that fearful situation, having the confidence that you will succeed at this. And so at the end of the program, I bring people up. We have everybody stand up. The music goes. And one at a time, they all eat fire. And as the people are in line and they see the first one do do it, with each one that has success, their confidence grows. And by the time you get to the end, hey, they're ready to go. Let's go. I've watched everybody else do this. It's the first person that's uh, usually a little bit more uh, reticent. Yeah, kind of like the uh, the Roger Bannister. Is it Roger Bannister breaking the four minute mile? Yes. You know, once he broke it, yep. it was broken countless times thereafter, which is crazy. Well, strange part was I know that story very well. Um, after he did it, two people did it a couple weeks after that, and thirteen people did it that year. And um, and prior to that, people thought if you did it, you would die that there was just physically no way that you could run under a four minute mile and physically your body could, could handle that. Once they broke it, everybody believed they could. Yeah. We do a thing in spring training every year. It's become kind of a ritual on opening night. Um, seven o'clock is our home opener and it's six o'clock. Everybody eats fire. And so it's kind of our way to start, you know, everybody doesn't have to, but the overwhelming majority of guys do. And there's a lot of video 
cameras, a lot of, a lot of phones out, um, capturing photographs and video. And it's kind of a great way to start the season for us. I feel like I know where you got that, Mike. The book you recommended to me what? recently, Legacy by, is it James Kerr? James he talk, Kerr, he, yes. He, talk, he talks about rituals and how they can be an important part of a team's culture. Um, maybe you got this from some source other than that, but it just reminded me of that book because I finished it a couple weeks ago. Actually, I've done it for a long time. And um, I mean, I've been fire eating for so many years, I, I can't count now. And uh, But the fire eating and spring training started at the very beginning and um, it's just kind of built on a life of its own as, t- as time has gone on. Yeah. Well, that's cool. So, you know, as a speaker, that's sort of one of these professions that lies outside of the normal nine to five. You know, it's something that people have to jump into on their own if they want to have that life. And it's one of those things that I think there's a lot of fear. I know I'm trying to get deeper into speaking. I've had a bunch this year and I want to make it one of my things going forward. How do you, how did you take the plunge and be one of those people who has this sort of alternate career and lifestyle that, you know, you're self-employed, you find your gigs and all this stuff. Uh, I think that's one of those, again, kind of like leap of faith things, kind of like an entrepreneur. Obviously you are an entrepreneur, but tell me about that transition from, you know, what did you do before that? What was nine to five like, or nine to five life like, and then taking that plunge? Well, it, it was, again, everything transitioned. So I had been a real estate broker and had done very well, had become acquainted with a man named Tom Hopkins. And Tom is probably one of the greatest sales technique trainers and speakers in the world. Tom is phenomenal at what he does. And so ultimately, I became the national sales manager for Tom's organization. Had had people that had asked me about speaking in the past um, in essence, showing kind of what I had done to have success in the real estate industry. I was a brander. That's what I did. I believed in branding and marketing and how did I do that? And so I had an opportunity to speak for the Reading Association of Realtors in Reading, California. And when they called, they said they generally had 50 to 75 people. I figured I could do that and uh, got on a plane, flew into Sacramento uh, rented a car, drove up to the Holiday Inn of Reading, and I walked in, and there were 400 chairs set up. So I called the guy at home and from the Association of Realtors, and he said, well, Mike, we had a lot more people sign up than we expected. And so I was doing three hours the next day. And uh, so it was a three-hour seminar. So as they, everybody came in the next day, I'm obviously nervous as can be. I've never spoke before that many people before. And I got up and I had some opening lines that I had built and they laughed. And I said, now uh, let's get into the material and section one, write this down. And people started writing. At the break, I had some people come up and ask whether I sold tapes of my presentation. Well, I didn't, but I guess I could. And uh, that that kind of started it. And I went from there and I did the Reno Association of Realtors. And then I did the Omaha and Nebraska Association of Realtors. And it kind of took on a life of its own. And back in 19, I'm going back now. Uh, So I started speaking professionally full time in 1990. I probably have at this point done, well, more than a thousand presentations over the years. Um, I tend to specialize in the financial services industry. Um, 
I've had some wonderful clients from John Hancock Mutual Funds that has used me a lot, Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, um, Hyatt Hotels. I, I've had a lot of really great clients over the years. And so what do you speak on primarily now? I mean, is it mostly motivation? Is it still training? Is it still sales? Or what's your primary? I really have three, three different presentations. Um, I have one that is solely, it's called In a League of Your Own. And it's how do you brand yourself? So, for example, you're a financial advisor with Merrill Lynch. There's 17,000 other Merrill Lynch financial advisors. How do you tell your story so someone would want to do business with you? So that's one presentation. I have another presentation that is solely motivational in nature. And then I have a third one that is about how do you create a customer experience? I had the opportunity to go through a lot of the Disney training uh, through the Disney Institute and incorporate that into the things we've done with the miners as far as the business is concerned. And uh, so I've taken a lot of those concepts and how we've used that and have built that into a customer service type of presentation. Okay. So I recently read, um, it was called Captain Class, and they talked about team captains and the role of you know leadership in great teams. So they talked about guys like Vince Lombardi, who was an amazing motivator. He gave just legendary speeches all the time. He just seemed to like ooze just legendary speeches. And then there are other guys who really didn't talk very much. They're just sort of like this gritty, gritty player who just played tough, but everyone sort of seemed to follow. So you with a motivational speaking background, does, does your speaking, does it manifest itself in the dugout? Well, first of all, I, I don't do speeches uh, for the team. It, it's rare that I do anything like that at all. It's more personal. I really do believe that this game is personal, and I'll have a lot better result if I get to know who you are as a person and manage you based on the things that drive you versus trying to have this cookie-cutter approach that I'm going to be the guy giving a motivational speech uh, in the as you know, in the course of in our case ninety six games, that would get real old real fast. Yeah. So, you know, you've talked a ton about relationships, um, and we've talked a ton about you know your different managerial strategies. But what do you see as the future of baseball? So we've talked a little bit about this on the sabermetric side. Obviously, there's a lot of new technology out there. Um, are the miners interested in? you know, getting a track man system or like, what do you, what do you guys see and what do you see as, as happening even in independent baseball? Well, first of all, I am driven by the new idea. One of the things we incorporate into our organization is something called what else thinking. The only answer you can't give me when I ask you, why do we do it this way is we've always done it that way. I'm looking for the new idea. I want the right answer. Um, so I am driven for that next thing. What's the next new piece of information that can give us an edge? I want to be playing chess when everybody else is playing checkers. I want to be playing a different game. And part of that comes from looking at every piece of information that's out there and asking how does this apply? How is this applicable to us? So is there anything you guys are using now? Any new big ideas that you're already running with? And if it's proprietary, you know, you don't have to tell me, but 
What are you guys doing? Well, I mean, I'll tell you the basic part behind it is we do have an advanced scouting program that we've invested a lot of money in. Um, none of our charts or anything along those lines are done with um, by hand. All of that is done to our to various iPads that we keep in order to track data. All of that information is uploaded into a scouting program and literally we can pull every day and pull every piece of information, all tendencies, um, defensive schematics, you know, where, where do we want to play guys? Uh, what are their tendencies? When do they run? All of those kinds of things are, are all available and tracked. The challenge is early in the season, it's all new information with all new guys. So the later the season goes, the better we should be just based on the fact that we have better information. Yeah. How long does it actually take you to get, have a, you know, a sample size that you feel like is relevant? Well, I utilize two advanced scouts as well and they have iPads as well. So they are in various parks around the league getting games in addition to the games we're playing. And so it's just a matter of, some guys very quickly show you who they are and what their tendencies are. Some guys can make adjustments as the season goes on. We have to watch for those and you know, not get so locked in that we can't make an adjustment. But uh, we do try to use technology in order to make our decision-making. One of the things I remember from our a previous conversation with you is that, you know, you – find a lot of importance in the little things as far as treating people a certain way and running your program a certain way. So one of the things that I'll never forget one of my seasons, I'm not going to mention which, cause I'm not going to point out which team it was, but we had unbranded shorts that we wore the whole year in, in uh, pregame. And at the end of the year, they wanted my unbranded sweaty shorts back. And, you know, you and I talked about how, you know, you guys have a nice clubhouse, you guys have a, you know, like a soda machine, you know, soda fountain, all these little details, but tell me what, what's the point of the details? Well, first of all, I think everything matters. There's a sign that says exactly that in my clubhouse, everything matters from having guys when they come in, feel they're in this warm, welcoming place. Um, as you walk into our clubhouse, we have photographs of all the players. We call it, it's called an honor wall. All the guys have been all-stars, all the guys have been picked up, and photographs of all of them. There's pictures of all the championship celebrations, um, uh, pictures of every time we've had a clubhouse celebration with champagne. All of those photographs are up there. Photographs of the team that won 20 games, 20-game uh, winning streak. So when you walk in, I want this feeling of that there have been really great players before you, and your job is to is to kind of take up where they left off. We're doing a thing this year where we're putting nameplates in every locker of every guy that has had that locker that has been an all-star or um, signed by an organization, anybody who's ever been in that locker before them. So I want guys to know that, there have really been great players before you. I think that's the start. You start with expectations and that, you know, there, there have been good players here. Um, I think it's important that you give guys everything they need to succeed from equipment to, I want them to look right. You know, you, you're never going to see our guys looking like slobs on the field. Um, 
everything is branded from motivational t-shirts that we do every year. We have a couple of those to BP. We have BP uniforms. We have pullovers. We have, we have practice pants. Our guys have practice pants. Um, you know, plus all their their game stuff. We have four sets of uniforms, BP caps. Um, yeah, we have three game new era caps. So we're trying to give them everything to feel like, hey, we're on our way to to doing something special here. Yeah, and that was a uh, that was a point of frustration for me one season, just because you felt I felt like a lot of details were overlooked and guys took advantage of that. They started to show up late in BP. They're out of uniform. And I remarked to our manager when he had conferences with all of us that, you know, this might be my major leagues. I might never make it where I want to make it. And if this is the best it is, I want it to be organized. I want to feel like this is the real deal. Because a lot of those guys, you know, that you manage might never make it anywhere else. That might be the last team they played for. And I'm sure you're, you're passionate about making sure that their experience with you, you know, was a great one. Well, you know, we talked about when I got the job, what were one of the pillars? It was to create the best experience of a player's lifetime. I wanted guys to look back years from now and not just, oh, I played independent ball. I played in Southern Illinois and have that mean something. And all of those things go into creating that experience. Uh, when, uh, you know, we have an area that has uh, a stock refrigerator, a stocked cooler, they have, um, there's a, a soda machine that has Gatorade in it or any of the soda drinks um, with Pepsi-Cola. Um, after BP, when they come in, there's a table set up with um, sandwiches and fruits and vegetables and salads. So they, they eat, eat healthy before a game. I don't want guys having to climb in their car and drive. First of all, we don't let guys do that. But um you know, once you get to the ballpark, you're here. We'll give you everything you need when you're here. You don't need to get your car and go drive off someplace. And um, and then after every game, we'll either have uh, one of our restaurants that we're partners with. We either take care of the post game meal, or our chef um, that takes care of our skyboxes will take care of feeding the players that night. Yeah, that's one of the often overlooked things is, you know, I remember when I was a player, if we just had decent gear, felt like we were cared about and were fed, we were all extremely happy. Because other than that, everything else is fine. Like we're playing baseball, we're doing what we want to do. But if you're hungry, if you feel like your paycheck is going, I mean, your meager paycheck anyway, you know, I made 600 a month my first season. You know, if you feel like you're not getting fed, you're maybe an expendable commodity and no one really cares who you are. It's just tougher to be as passionate about what you're doing. It's just the little things. I mean, go a long way. I never wanted a guy to feel like they were just a name and a number. And, uh, and one of the things I think that happens and you've been around this releases happen. And the worst part, to be honest, is spring training. That's the worst. You have to bring in too many players because the one thing I know is that I can't predict human performance from year to year. I can't predict, is a guy going to prepare? I can't predict what his motivation and desire was. Did he lose it over the course of the winter? So I have to have extra guys. And it's going to mean that I'm going to have to release some. Those are really bad days for me. I'm grouchy around that time. I try to not talk to anybody for that couple day period of time because when it, 
when a player no longer matters, when I no longer can feel that empathy for the fact of, in many cases, you know, guys' identities are wrapped up in they're a baseball player. They were the best little league guy. They were the best high school guy. That they, they sometimes were the best college player ever played that at that college. They have their number retired at their college in some cases, and they go into professional baseball. They're there a few years, and then when I release them, they're not anymore. And if I can't have empathy and handle that the right way, then I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. And the last year for me, you know, speaking from experience was really, really hard when I realized that my story didn't have this, you know, fairy tale ending that everything that I had hoped was going to happen from the time I was a little kid was now over. And you're like, you just feel like you don't know which direction to go. So you got dropped off in the middle of the woods and you're like, I don't, I don't know what's happening right now. And it just takes a while to get out of it. And there's no great solution to it. You just well, figure you it out. A lot of- you get a lot of people go through that, oh, you know what, forget this game and the politics of the game. And one of the things we're doing this year is I'm giving guys, for lack of a better term, a departure package. And it's, what do you do next? What are your, what are your next options? How do you do it? Um, how do you get your word out there to other teams or other leagues? And where do you go? Who, what are the email addresses to start that process? So I at least want to go that far. I may not be able to keep a guy, but um, it doesn't mean I can't be. He still put his heart and soul in coming into us. I, I can at least put that time into him. Yeah, well, that's, that's good. It's There's not much out there like that. And there's not many people talking about what happens after you're gone. I, uh, a friend of mine's a former UCLA soccer player. And, you know, she just, when we were talking the other day about how, you know, when she was done there, she, uh, didn't go on to play pro soccer and she just for a long time didn't know who she was and she felt like soccer took a lot from her and her perspective has changed over the last couple of years so it was interesting to kind of see how she's evolved and her her story but um I, you know she remarked the same thing that they didn't they didn't prepare me in college at all to like face that transition i just was like thrown out and that was that was that well we do you know we do some things during spring training, you know, people say, you know, what kind of, what kind of things do you do that are different? So during spring training, I do a course called hashtag don't press send. And it's a social media course on how do you as a player protect your brand and my brand with the minors by taking care of your social media? How can you absolutely destroy your career? And I show them examples as to how it's done and then other guys that have used their social media to start building brands for their future life. Um, I've, I, ha- I bring a chef in during spring training to teach our guys how to cook for themselves. And part of it is it's a team building exercise. They work as teams to create these dishes. Um, but part of it is I want them to learn some life skills for when they leave here. Um, I brought a professional umpire in to talk to our guys about the truth behind the player umpire relationship. And so again, I'm always looking for what's that next thing we could do that helps that player maybe be a little bit more well-rounded. And the funny thing is you saw me with a bunch of our guys at the ABCA this year. Mm-hmm. And these are guys that have played, you know, over the last 10 years for me, it's funny how they appreciate what we did here in Southern Illinois so much more after they were gone. 
when you're a player, it's just one of those things you do every day. But when they're gone, so many of these guys have looked back and said, yeah, that was pretty cool. We did that. Yeah, it was uh, obviously our mutual friend, Dave Harden. And, you know, you had a, a pretty big group of guys there. And it was pretty cool to see, uh, you know, just how many are still involved in the game and, you know, and, and still passionate about it. Yeah, we had 13 of our former players. Uh, we all got together for a photograph and um, very cool to, to see guys going on in this game and, in doing well. I'm incredibly proud of all of them and am always a resource for anything they would ever need. So as we wrap up, Mike, last, last major question for you, the frontier league tryouts coming up, uh, we're probably what, six, six ish weeks away, maybe a little less. Yeah. About yeah. That. What, um, you know, I have an, an article on my website, you know, it kind of gives you a little bit of an idea of what to expect there. Um, of, or just of frontier league baseball in general, what, what recommendations would you give, to a new guy who's planning on attending that tryout? Oh, that's a a tough one, Dan. Um, First of all, there's an awful lot of guys. And so if a player has the ability to reach out to coaches in advance and let them know who they are, what they've done, you know, and this is, let me me add to this. It's, I see so, every day I am pounded with emails from players and most times it's the same thing. Really love to play. Um, I have a lot of passion. I'll do a great job for you, etc. Please give me more information. Give me a link to your stats. Give me a list of scouts or coaches that um, would be recommendation sources. Maybe these are guys I know, and I can send a quick text and get information about you. If I can be looking out for you at the tryout, that is a whole lot easier than me trying to find you in the midst of 400 guys that might be there. Yeah, no, that's, that's good advice. The, uh, cause I, I know my first contract, my whole career started in normal because a friend of mine who played pro ball, who played with a hitting coach at normal, he called the hitting. He talked to the manager, uh, my agent sort of guy who just has always advised me, been a, been a sort of my agent throughout my career. He called the manager and then I threw for that manager's one of his former um, players, who's a coach in the uh, in the uh, American Association. He called for me, so three different references got me my first spring training contract, and I made the team out of there. So, you know, I was sight unseen when I showed up in spring training. So I think you know, for guys trying to get through four hundred other players and be seen, it's just it seems like an impossible task. It really is, and it's not really easy on us either. Because after a while, everybody blends in together. And so unless something is special or I'm looking for you, um, some scout called me or a coach called me and said, Mike, this might be a guy for you. And now I have his name, his number, and I bear down on him. That's a whole lot easier. Yeah, I mean. So many of the rookies that we signed come from recommendations. Yeah, and I just and we, had, we had trials of 75 kids last year and even then you know a week later we're coming down to our final cuts we're like ah tell me the difference between johnny and and billy again i don't know i can't remember like they're both like five foot five they through like 54 you know you just everyone and i think to have 400 guys in front of you i just can't imagine when everyone's running a 7060 everyone's hitting some balls off the fence everyone's throwing 89 to 92 it's just got to be just such a tough process And, and you can't be everywhere so pitchers are over there in that corner. 
These guys are taking ground balls. Catchers are throwing over here. And to watch all of it and gather it, gather that information, and now I've got to make a decision on that, it, there's so much guesswork that comes out of that tryout. Yeah. Well, hey, Mike, this has been one of my favorite conversations. It's been a really great talk. I appreciate you being on the show. Um, so everyone who's listening, follow up with Mike. He's on Twitter at MikePinto3. Is there anywhere else you'd like people to follow up with you, Mike? Yeah, that's you know that's probably a good one. I'm on Instagram as well. If guys want to do that, I don't do a ton on it, but uh, but I am there. I tend to be on Twitter more than anything. Is it the else. same uh, same handle on Instagram? Yes. Yep. At Mike Pinto three. Well, hey, great. Uh, good luck this season. Again, thanks for having uh, coming on the show, and you know, good luck with. Uh, I think you only need what eleven wins. So keep my fingers crossed for you. Uh, eleven wins away. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> Well, thanks so much for having me, Dan. I really appreciate it. It was a really enjoyable conversation. You're really a great baseball guy, and uh, we're a tremendous competitor. Um, I never liked facing you because I know you were you were out there to win, and um, th- those guys are tough. So I-, I have great respect for what you did and what you're trying to do now. Wish you the best. All right, appreciate it. All right, and we'll see all of you next week on Dear Baseball Gods.